we're at the beginning of the ESG data wars. What does this mean for the industry? There's more and more data coming onto the market, more and more information that's tremendously useful if only you can process it. And so analytics firms, data generators like the exchanges, financial information providers like Refinitiv and others are all struggling to solve this question. There are trillions of dollars flooding into the ESG investment space. The number of firms that have built out data infrastructures to aggregate and analyze ESG-related information has exploded. They're all rushing to reach economies of scale and develop distribution capabilities to claim their share of the market for ESG data. I spoke with Will Trout about his new report on ESG in portfolio management, how discrete client stock restrictions are slowly being replaced by an integrated approach, and a whole lot more on this episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast. So great to have you here with me in the wonderful world of wealth tech. And you're listening to episode 67 of the Wealth Management Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Iskowitz. I run a consulting firm called Ezra Group. We're experts in everything related to wealth tech and wealth tech strategy, wealth tech operations. Uh, we deliver growth-oriented solutions to banks, broker, dealers, asset managers, RIA aggregators, as well as all those wealth tech providers out there through our premium advice and targeted market research. On this podcast, I speak with some of the smartest people in the industry who are on the leading edge of technology and innovation. And before we start the episode, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It'll really help and I appreciate it. Thanks. And I'm happy to uh, introduce my next guest on the podcast is Will Trout, Head of Wealth Management at Sellent. Will, what's going on, man? Hey, Craig. Good to see you again. It's good to see you as well. Uh, since we don't have any conferences to go to, we don't see each other as much as we used to see each other. I know. Uh, I have the buffet all to myself. <laughs> And you have the buffet to yourself and no more running. We used to get to go running in the morning when whatever city we were in, uh, along whatever places we were, that was always fun. Uh, So we'll have to figure out how to do that again. But uh, this podcast, we're uh, talking about a new report that Selen just put out, that you just put out, part of Selen. It's called ESG in Portfolio Management from Data to Deployment. And before we do that, can you give us a quick 30-second elevator pitch for Sellent? Sure thing, Craig. I'll give you the 15-second version. So Sellent is a division of Oliver Wyman. We're the research and advisory arm of the business. And our focus is the intersection of strategy and technology in financial services. I head the wealth management practice Excellent. So let's talk about the report. Let's just dive right in. Uh, ESG in portfolio management from data to deployment. So uh, ESG is a big hot topic. Everyone's interested in it. We've done a couple podcasts on different aspects of it. 
And some of the, the key points uh, pulled out of the report, uh, the money's flowing. There's this huge amounts of assets flowing into ESG. What are you seeing there? Well, yeah, I mean, ESG is exploding um, in terms of the asset flow. So several observers uh, have estimated uh, sort of ESG-driven investments as totaling uh, more than $30 trillion. And that was two years ago. That was in 2018. Um, today, we're approaching $50 trillion and, and, and should reach uh, 53 by the end of 2021. So, you know, whether you talk about funds or managed accounts or other types of investments, you're seeing an explosion of interest in the topic. And I think, you know, a lot of people understand ESG, environmental social governance uh, criteria, as mostly E, so environment or sustainability, but obviously with the, the social tensions and uh, governance issues that have emerged uh, in recent years, you're seeing uh, a broader adoption of those criteria for investment decision-making. I want to focus on a couple parts of the report that I think will be more interesting to our, our audience. And you know, we work with a lot of broker dealers, banks, asset managers, and uh, you know, implementing systems and building software around managed accounts, fee-based advisory platforms. So I was really interested in the section you have on screening versus integration. And I, I, I didn't know what you meant by those terms. Can you explain what it means by what you mean by screening versus integration in terms of ESG? A great question, Craig. And so screening, I think everyone understands um, sort of at an intuitive level, right? You might say restrictions or you can screen out an entire sector, say oil and gas, for example, or you can screen out individual companies, ExxonMobil, that, you know, have a heavy carbon footprint. Um, integration, on the other hand, is a more holistic wide lens approach where you're basically taking into account ESG criteria um, from the very beginning of the investments process. And so you've seen uh, BlackRock, for example, announce that, that all investments are going to be ESG driven or, or rather their actively managed funds are going to be ESG driven from 2021 onward. And UBS just announced something similar. Um, you know, I think what investors and what portfolio managers are doing is adopting a more sophisticated um, approach to investing. So, you know, ExxonMobil actually may be a great fit for your portfolio. And they're, um, you know, they have a carbon footprint to be sure, but they're doing a lot of social um, good and, 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 and positive actions from, from other standpoints, perhaps. And do, do you want to restrict your portfolio in a way that will lead to underperformance. That's a big difference. Um, the integrated approach does not assume any sacrifice of returns, whereas the screening approach says, hey, you know, we're going to screen out this company and if it damages returns, well, that's, you know, part of, part of the game. Exactly. That's when we always did screening. I mean, on all the systems we built or helped design for custodians or broker-dealers, there was always a restrictions part of the managed account process where you lock out different groups of stocks, either, either, either getting a feed from a vendor that said, here's our list of, uh, of stocks where you can block oil and gas or, or weapons or energy uh, or at, at different levels or specific stocks for whereas now, but that, as you said before, that was, you were, you were willing to underperform if 
tobacco stocks over out, outperform because you didn't want them. But with the integrated approach, that doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean the the screening is uh, method is a pretty blunt tool. It's sort of the the hammer approach, Craig. Whereas with the 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 integrated approach, you're really looking at the whole portfolio, and so you're not being as black and white in terms of your decision. You're going to see where the portfolio is um, sits, you know, from a from a broad perspective, and not restrict or or exclude any particular firm or actor, you know, from the get go. So would this be? Uh... If you're looking at the technology part, like a wealth management platform vendor, they wouldn't be dealing with integration that comes from the asset manager. Well, a lot of the business is is funds still, mutual funds or, or, or ETFs, and so um, or, you know if you're if you're looking at, at at those products or individual securities, um, it is possible to to screen out um, you know as firms have been doing for years, sectors or individual securities. Um, you know, it's it's really about, as I talk in the report, rebalancing software allows you to get granular in terms of the holdings. And so, you know, that might be part of a trading platform or that might be self-standing rebalancing traction. Um, you know, there are a number of ways to, to slice that. Yeah, it's something we see a lot. We have a number of clients who offer rebalancing software and I know they're always looking for differentiators. And I think this could be something they could offer that would help their, their clients deliver better results to their clients. Well, absolutely. And you've seen the growth of direct indexing, right? That's a recent phenomenon. And, and you have a number of vendors playing in that space. Um, the ability to do that, um, you know, is, is, uh, is powerful. And you can customize those indexes, those direct indexes to reflect ESG criteria as well. Yeah, so has, rebalancing software is a great, a great weapon here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the direct indexing has taken off. The number of vendors is, I mean, twenty years ago or fifth or fifteen years ago it was it was only one or two. Even five years ago, there was very few. Now there seems to be twenty or so firms that are supporting direct indexing, from custodians to TAMPs and other vendors. Uh, but the, the, I think the rise of fractional shares really uh, facilitated that, didn't it? Well, that's right. You know, zero commissions and 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 fractional sh- fractional shares. Um, allow you to build a, an index portfolio, ESG-centric or not, for a fraction of the cost. Um, you know, you would have to build that stock by stock yourself, and so that's all part of the democratization of investing. A trend that you know extends from sort of the Robin Hoods of the world to um, you know more sophisticated uh, providers, including family offices that are that are, you know, really eager to offer um, an entry point, say, for younger investors or, or, or otherwise reduce the, the minimum needed for entry. So um, just like rebalancing software and UMA um, has become democratized, uh, fractional shares have allowed the construction of portfolios um, to a range of criteria that simply would have required you know, millions of dollars to construct back in the day. And you, you had, you know, Natexas and Aperio and firms like that doing it, um, uh, Parametric as well. Now, you, as you say, you've got practically dozens of firms with these capabilities. Sure. You know, Orion announced fractional shares, one of the bigger RIA broker-dealer technology platforms. Uh, I know a lot of other right. firms are looking into it. 
even in alternatives um, and, and mm-hmm. liquids, like you can buy a share of a, you know, 1928 Rolls Royce, right? If it's, if it's securitized somehow. So um, yeah, you no longer need to have $3,000 to, to get equity in Amazon, for example. Oh, sure. get a fraction yeah, of that's, that's the old days, right? Well, even less, you can, now you can buy odd lots. You remember when you, you couldn't buy odd lots or it would cost a lot more to buy that. You had to buy in round, in round lots of a hundred. Now people can still buy one share, but the, the democratization, as I see it, is when the fractional shares came out that you could buy $100 worth of the S&P, not just buying a fund, but buying an actual group of stocks and, and owning shares of that at that level. So, uh, but the, but the big, one of the biggest parts of that is tax optimization. And on a wealth front, uh, was, one of the, was one of the first robos to offer that where they, they believe they can generate tax alpha for even the smallest clients in, in a taxable account. That's right. I remember when they launched their, their direct indexing proposition and, and, and you've seen others follow. So um, the ability to build around concentrated positions to generate tax alpha, uh, to incorporate social criteria or environmental social governance criteria are all um, present huge upside. I wanted to move on to another part of the uh, report, and uh, it's the data requirements and the what we call the, the uh, it's the the figure five ESG marketplace and data flow. And I'll, I'll share this. I'll put this on the screen on the video of the podcast. People can see, and I'll put it on Twitter so people can see this diagram. But it's a, it's a diagram that shows left to right the data flow in ESG, where on the you have data generators on the left, and a bunch of a bunch of logos of different companies, and then into the trading risk management vendors, into the alternative data providers, into analytics, into the buy side. Can you kind of explain how this diagram works? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, there, there have been um, a number of articles in the general media on the rise of the exchanges. They were once clubby, sort of quiet, backwater organizations. Now they're global financial institutions that are generating data. Um, they're distributing that data. Um, to the asset managers or, or even wealth managers on the buy side. And they're also analyzing the data producing analytics. Um, and you have in that category of data generators, not just the exchanges who, who you know, are, are really the vertically integrated uh, providers of data, generate the data and distribute it downstream. You also have firms like Refinitiv, you have firms like Morningstar, that uh, Bloomberg that, that produce um, uh, analyze and distribute data. Um, what has happened in the market, um, however, is that there's been the emergence of all these really cool next generation analytics firms. You know, you've got Owl Anal- Analytics, you've got True Value Labs, Arabesque firms like that, that are solving a problem in the marketplace. They're providing asset and wealth managers with derived data. In other words, not just the raw data, but analysis based on that data that the asset and wealth manager can consume in a quick and immediate fashion. And so there's a titanic struggle going on. Who owns the data, right? Data is an asset. Who owns that data asset? Who distributes that data asset? And, and, and even what I would call data mastery or taxonomy, like how is this data structured? Um, via knowledge graphs, for example, which Refinitiv has done, which AWS has done with Neptune. This is a huge deal because if you're able to classify or, or dictate how the data is structured, 
you have huge control and you can analyze it in new ways and distribute it to the end consumer um, as a, as a one-stop shop. So we're seeing a lot of interest from the cloud providers, Microsoft, AWS, Google, and others in basically, you know, finally getting to that point where they can monetize data as an asset, uh, ESG data as an asset, um, by generating it, slicing and dicing it, and distributing it to the, to the buy side. So I, I call this the data wars, Craig. And right now the exchanges um, enjoy a privileged position in that they, they, they control the data flow, but there are a lot of new entrants very hungry for part of that game. One thing you mentioned was knowledge graphs. So, so I, I have a degree in computer science, so I, I think of it in terms of the computer science knowledge graph of a, yeah. of a data model, but I think you're referring to something different. What do you mean when you say a knowledge graph? Sure, sure. I mean, I would describe it simply as something akin to LinkedIn, where every piece of data is linked to another piece of data. And so there's coherence in the larger data set. Whereas, you know, you look at a traditional database or, or data, data storage structure, you have all these different data points that are unrelated. In a knowledge graph, you have a structure of the data where every piece of data is connected to another piece of data, which is connected to another piece of data. And what that, just like LinkedIn, right, a network effect, and what that means is you cannot just throw in more data into the architecture, into the data storage. It actually needs to be connected or linked to another piece. And that gives the data real structure and coherence and power um, in terms of the logic and how that data can be used. So it's a tremendously powerful tool for analytics as anyone who, you know, has used LinkedIn or Facebook um, is quite aware. Your point about data is well taken. It's in, we've seen data being uh, an important part of wealth management business and uh, wealth management technology for quite some time. Um, will, will this become a problem with these firms? And with, if, if these firms own the data, Will that, rot, will that drive up costs? Will, will there be, at least say, a data war? Firms saying, well, you don't have this data. We're not going to give you access to it because it belongs to our proprietary universe. Or is this something that's all going to level out where the difference between a Refinitive or an MSCI or an SP Global won't be that big of a deal? That's a great question, Craig. And, and actually, I think we're at the beginning of the data wars rather than at the conclusion. First of all, there's the emergence of all new types of data, whether it's you know satellites pulling data from the proverbial Walmart parking lot or um, data from the Internet of Things, um, you know, how hard you, you put your foot on the brake, for example, used for um, insurance assessments. Um, there's also um, a uh, huge disparity among the ratings and, and other forms of evaluations delivered by these data providers. So I call that comparability. So Refinitiv's ratings are not necessarily the same as Sustainalytics or those of ISS. And, and so as a consumer, you're faced with a conundrum. Not only do you have different uh, ratings or, or, or grades assigned to your uh, the investments you're looking at, but um, uh, you're not necessarily even sure how these ratings were, were derived or, or the methodology may be confusing or you may have trouble actually using them in a, in a practical or actionable way. That's why many firms on the buy side, wealth and asset managers are looking to raw data, you know, data straight from the satellite or data straight from 
um, a report uh, issued by the company or wh whatever the case may be. The problem is how do you consume that data? So there's this entire level of analytics that, that represents the growth area of this business. Um, I think it'll be awfully hard in, in short, Craig, to corner the market on data. The Invest in Others Charitable Foundation recognizes individual advisors and firms that are making a difference by donating their time and money to causes that they care about. The Invest in Others Foundation builds critical visibility, encourages others to get involved, and channels additional resources to those in need and highlights the important work being championed by the financial services community. I volunteer with uh, Invest in Others and help them out where I can. I'm also on some of the judging panels. And this is the awards week. Normally, it's held in person at a, in a big gala up in uh, gala up in Boston, but can't do it now with COVID. So it's all virtual. And this week, they're announcing the winners in all their categories. The categories include Catalysts, Community Service, Global Impact, Volunteer of the Year, which should be uh, today, September 24th, when this podcast drops. And then tomorrow... The day after this podcast drops, depending on when you're listening, is the Lifetime Achievement Award. You can go to investinothers.org and watch the award presentations. And please specifically donate to this great cause. Uh, I would really appreciate it. Indeed, there's, there's always more data. I guess uh, the question is, uh, is it compatible? And do people understand that? So when they see a rating that this company is good on ESG, whatever the number is, how Refinitiv defines it, or, I mean, we've talked to a couple other firms, Act Analytics and, yep. uh, you know, all these MSCI, MSCI and um, you know, the other, other different firms that, that are creating these data sets that if there, there's, a, uh, I think, a misunderstanding at the other end, whether it's investors or CIOs or, or people who are you now consuming it to know that when Refinitiv says these guys are good and here, or when you're doing a screen and here's all the, the levers you can pull to get firms that you think are good, you might get a completely different set. If you go to MSCI or you go to S&P and Global, right? So what you're saying you can get a completely different screen of, of firms using the same criteria based on the, the underlying data. Well, that's right. And, and then I would, would even take that further and say, you know, what percentage of that data is actually being, being provided by the company that's being profiled by, you know, ExxonMobil, to use that example again, or, or, or BP or whomever, what, what, you know, what is, is basically, you know, from the corporate report and is that relevant or is that going to be what, what's sometimes been called greenwashing, right? Efforts to, to virtue signal. Um, so there's real um, questions about, yeah, what goes in the soup um, and whether your soup is comparable to someone else's and, um, and that's hard. And then, you know, that's actually why firms are using things like uh, controversy ratings, like, like, you know, how often does your company appear in the news and in what sense? Because a lot of the ratings are, are by definition, the traditional ratings are, are actually fairly static, right? They rely on information that's months old. And so how do you get a real-time update in a way that helps you manage your portfolio? That's a million-dollar question. Or billion-dollar question, depending, right? Or trillion, as we as we say in the report, that's right. And uh, I want to, before we before we're done, we're running out of time. I really wanted to, to touch on the implementation part of your report, which I find the most interesting. That's the part that my company, uh, Ezra Group, gets involved in a lot, which is how these this these, these tools and technologies and data get actually run by enterprises. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the roles and the workflow of ESG as you have it defined and implementation in your report? 
Absolutely. I divide uh, portfolio management from an ESG perspective into three broad categories. There's customization. We talked about that before, the ability to create bespoke portfolios. That's really not economics for most firms, or it hasn't been um, until the onset of fractional shares. But you, know, you have family offices, you have sovereign wealth funds, these type of firms creating portfolios from scratch that reflect their unique criteria. More common is, is going to be an SMA or managed account whereby you're buying the intellectual capital of a third-party asset manager and you're uh, managing these, 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 uh, this intellectual capital or models via some sort of coordinating technology, rebalancing other. Basically, you're accessing the best in breed uh, funds and, and, and security selection processes out there on the market. Lastly, and perhaps most interestingly, is direct indexing. In the ESG context, that would be modified direct indexing. Recreating an index ESG or, or, or SPX, S&P 500, but then custom customizing the individual uh, holdings to the criteria of the investor or to an ESG-based lens. And as we've talked about, that's been made a lot easier with, by, by the arrival of fractional shares. And, and zero commissions if you're no longer worried about incurring costs and you can fine tune your investment decisions to, to capture say a 10th of a share of, a, of an Amazon or whomever, you can really deliver that kind of customization and with modern technology deliver it at scale. That's a very powerful proposition, Craig. Indeed. I mean, that's the one thing a lot of our enterprise clients want. They want to be able to deliver all, any solution at scale. That's the whole point. If you've got a great solution, but it doesn't scale well, then you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be profitable. And uh, the other part of your implementation was about specifically about managed accounts. And that's something we deal with a lot, uh, fee-based advisory platforms and managed, and managed accounts. And the, the, the portfolio structures for ESG I thought that was interesting and how that's, how that's different scalability, customizability between the different uh, portfolios. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. T tell me where you'd like me to focus because there's a lot there, Craig. Well, uh, just talk about the, um, the index replication maybe in the models. Yeah. Um, essentially, if you're able to, um, access um, models of multiple managers. You can draw in all different types of products. You can bring, bring in funds. You can bring in ETFs, individual securities, fixed income. And you're able to slice and dice um, at, a, at a pretty fine level uh, using fractional shares. You can really um, build out a diverse and um, ESG-centered portfolio in a way, and using auto auto automated rebalancing, have it updated on a very frequent basis. Of course, that'll require some operational agility, right? If you're using actively managed models, you're going to need to to rebalance often. But lower transaction costs and the ability to take positions on a fractional basis really enable that agility. And for those firms that invest in technology or that develop technology for uh, wealth managers, um, you know, they're quite aware that, that that nimbleness and the ability to manage exceptions and, and build around 
existing positions into it at scale and it has truly become the holy grail. So breaking the trade-off between customization and scale is, 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 is today's reality and I'm excited to see where we go from here. I'm really excited. Uh, and we're out of time. I mean, to where we go from here, there's, there's so much, there's so the, the, the world is kind of our oyster on this and we're really at the very beginning, as you said earlier, rather than even in, even the middle of the whole ESG trend. And uh, I'm really interested in this report. There's a lot to dig into. I'm going to share a couple of the slides um, in the video for people who are, who are going to watch it on YouTube and we'll put it onto Twitter, a couple of pieces of it uh, for people who are going to listen to the podcast. And Will, thanks. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Very informative. And look forward to seeing more stuff out of you guys at Selling. Thank you, Craig. Hey, it's Craig again. Another fantastic episode is in the can. My top three takeaways were $53 trillion in ESG investments by 2021 which is up from $30 trillion in 2018. That's a 77% increase. Restrictions or screening out specific stock sectors has been morphed into the integration of ESG inside of the investment process of asset managers. And finally, ESG data wars with providers like Refinitiv, Morningstar, and FactSet all battling it out like a UFC steel cage match for dominance in this hot investing category. Please drop what you're doing and leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share a link to this episode on your social media networks. Talk to you all again next time.